I'm back. Welcome back, everybody. Hello, it's us. You remember us, right? Of course you do. It hasn't been like forever since we've recorded anything. No way, not us. Why are you talking about yourself in the plural, Joanna? I'm not. I'm talking about you too. Yes, yeah, the so royal us. <laughs> we could. We didn't timestamp the original episode, so we could pretend that we recorded that in September, and this is the week after that. We didn't. Yeah. Say what time it was at all, or day no, in the I, podcast at all. No, I, I think when I was editing it, we didn't we didn't say that. Huh. We said we were on would be, but never mind. Then I take it all back. Yeah. this is exactly when it's supposed to be occurring. We are totally on schedule. Yeah, uh, but no, that was in July, and this okay. this took uh, two and a half months. But we're gonna be well, two months in one week. We're gonna try to be monthly from here on out uh, for our many our many fans. I have already had a total of one person listen to it and tell me they liked it. So we're on a good track. I bet a couple people listen to it. Does that count? No. I've, I've had uh, several people like it as well. They do that's like great. It. That's great. Neil wanted to know why I think he didn't appreciate the Academy. I guess that should go into mailbag comments. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Sure. Yeah, put that. We'll do mailbag at the end. Maybe in future episodes we'll have it at the beginning. It's at, maybe. maybe it's we'll at the even... beginning. It's, it's the second thing. Not on my not not on my notes. It isn't. Oh. You Joanna has invented a mailbag. No, no, no. Okay, general podcast structure. <laughs> oh, well, sure. Which which we which we've not doing. Whatever. Okay, whatever. That's, we won't do it. We won't at do some it point, there's if, no mail. No one has ever made any comments. <laughs> shut up. At some point, we're going to set up like maybe like an email account or something where people can actually mail us when you know when we're rich and famous and this is listened to by people who don't actually know us in person. Uh, but moving on, so um, yes, it took us a bit over two months to record the second episode because recording podcasts is really hard. Um, we actually originally going to try to re- start recording this in like February or March of this year, and then there were internet problems and technical problems and things to figure out, uh, and then we recorded one in person, but then there are various problems with recording it remotely and you know not having perfect studios that are immune from street noise and microphones not being recognized and software features and whatever so it's a lot of work it is lots Um, of technical work we also um realized after recording the first episode that the abbreviation of our name is a poo or just a poo um that was not intentional you know what else we realized about the logo well, yeah, well, no, I'm just talking about the name. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, I, I know what we didn't realize about the logo. <laughs> I can't say it. I say, I, I don't say the misspelled word as good as you do. So you should say uh, it. So I made a logo and I spent hours on it. And then it turned out that it wasn't square, which Apple requires. So then I spent a while making it square. And then it turned out it wasn't 3,000 by 3,000 pixels which apple requires and so then i tried to upscale it and then things happened and i got so frustrated and i was like joanna 
can you just make a logo? And Joanna was very nice and was like, okay. The good news is that I do know how to make squares and I do know how to set pixels, but I don't know how to spell. And that ended up being an issue, yeah. So so, so her logo said a possibility of opinions. 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 There was no second eye in opinions. Anyways, well, actually, you can go look right now. There is still no second eye. Yeah, there is still no second eye. Um, we have we have plans for a fancy new logo. I'm just selfless like that. That's really all it is. Which I haven't told Joanna about, but I have I have an artist lined up to do it. Um, so I think we'll get something cool. Cool. But yeah, so we're live. We're gonna try to do this once a month. Uh, hopefully, we'll find ways to be interesting. And we won't time this when I have a full stomach. So right now I have to do this sober, which is harder. I don't have to do this sober, but I also have a full stomach. This is confusing. Wait, you're, so you you can drink on a full stomach? Oh yeah. No, not me. I find I find beer very filling. What you, you're just holding that? What is that? That does not look like a beer. What is that? It looks it's like a Bronx brewery. Bronx brewery. No resolutions. IPA. Seven point six ABV. Which is really nothing for most people, but it's something for me. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's normal IPA. And yep. I, I, I'm kind of, I'm in a, I'm in a IPAs very rarely phase of my life right now. But that's not very interesting. So, um, we have a number of things to talk about today. Some things are going to be our regular sections later on with the game club and the book club and the media club. Um, lots of clubs. It's kind of like we have a caddy. And they hand us the club that we need. Joanna doesn't know what I'm talking about. Nope, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's called golf. It's a sport that some people play. I know a little bit about golf. Um, although I've never seen Caddyshack, I have images of it in my head. And I think some of the things you just explained are in those images. I mean, insofar as it's, it takes place at a golf club, yes, and there are caddies. I, yeah, that's that's do, what do, I think do, of. Do you know where the caddies? Say, yeah, yes. do you know where the caddies hang out? No, in a shack. Is it in they a hang shack? out. They hang out in the caddy shack. Why do they call it a shack? Well, because I mean they're not like in the main club, right? Those caddies are like the low level. Shouldn't it be people. like the caddy shed or the caddy cabin? The caddy cabin. See, that's what it should be called. That's that, even but a- that that makes it sound like it's full of cats. No, but you have to use the word caddy. Like, I know, but for some reason, when, when you make it alliterative, caddy cabin sounds like, I don't know, that just makes me think of... What about cabin. caddy bitches? Do you think of golf or do you think of cats? Oh my god. Sorry, that wasn't that funny. I know. Okay. Yeah, well, it was, it, was, it was in line with the normal humor of your jokes. Let's get back to the topic. Um, so first, we're going to be talking about JP, which we mentioned uh, previously in the last episode. Uh, we gave a brief overview. Do you want to give a recap? Sure. Okay, so JP stands for just points in two um, two senses. One is just points as in merely points, and the other is just points as in uh, justice, fair points. And the notion behind this was um, when Dylan and I originally began to hang out in college, it became pretty evident to both of us that it was very important for Dylan to have some kind of on like record or otherwise um, recognition of being right in an argument. Whereas for me, I think I just more like the act of arguing and, and, and would just do so continuously. So the end result is that we needed a system 
Uh, I did not want to bet money. I'm not. Did you want to bet money, or were you also against betting? No, money? no. I was. I was in favor of betting money because I, I knew it was going were. to win. Yes, right. So <laughs> that makes sense. So, uh, so we ended up coming up with this point system, and the way it works is you get point. You agree upon how much points uh, a disagreement is worth, and then whoever turns out to be right gets that number of points, and you can spend points to get the other person. This is tricky to say out loud. To get the other person to do something that they normally wouldn't do with the caveat that it's not creepy and sexual. It's just like pushing the boundaries of, what you know, like, so if you're someone who, who never watches comedies, I'm a person who rarely watches comedies, you know, watching a comedy or what's another example um, of something we've spent JP on in the past? I'm trying to think of ones that weren't media. There's definitely some video game ones. Um... I know it's been. I, I we have a spreadsheet from like ages ago, but it's been a long time. Is the point since we've actually regularly done this? So one thing that we're trying to do with this podcast is both to re- revive the system and provide a platform. Hilariously, we still have a Google Doc that has the record of points, though. So even yeah. though we haven't actually used, you know, earned or spent them uh, anytime recently, we still the system is still in place. We we have some banked. Uh, the the issue though is that. The setup, the way it worked, it worked really well when we were hanging out in person a lot um, because of, it would come up all the time in conversation and a lot of our act, in-person activities would just sort of generate moments where um, earning GP, JP made sense. But uh, now Dylan's in Sacramento and I am in New York, um, so New York City. So we have to come up with a new way, sort of rejigger the whole system so that it a works long distance yeah rejigger it's a yep. it's a word i know okay it's a good it's a good word it's a good word um and so we spent some time between podcasts figuring out actually mostly mostly on a train um back in washington figuring out what this system would now look like um so we had to figure out two parts which is how to earn it and how to spend it um so previously we'd earned it again on these betting on these arguments which we don't really have the opportunity to have much um, in person. So we came up with a few things. One is that we still try to play games together some, and that's both, you know, board games during trips. And we're doing roughly right now, about every other week, we're playing a video game of some sort. So we had the idea of betting, just betting points on the outcomes of games uh, and generating JP out there. And I guess that could be head to head games. We've actually been mostly playing cooperative games. So that may just be like on specific accomplishments in a game or like I bet you to JP that we're not going to finish this before I freeze to death for the third time. Um, we'll get to that later in the podcast. Okay. Where you Hopefully not you. too late. You'll still be yeah. alive. Ah, ah, ah. That's terrible. And uh, the second one was earning points for doing something nice or going out of your way for someone else. And it has to be either witnessed by somebody. So, I mean, sometimes it might just be doing nice things for each other, but it could be, again, when we're visiting or whatever. But you can't, like, obviously just be nice to people to earn points. Right. Um, though I guess, I mean, I guess if that's what you, if you went around, like, if I just went around and was a fabulous human being for the rest of my life just to, like, rack up these imaginary points, that would probably be a better outcome for everybody. Yep. Probably. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but I can't do it. No. It's not allowed. Can't be it's purpose. not allowed. <laughs> In uh, fact... So- Every time you even think about doing it for that reason, you have to go out of your way to do something bad just to show that you're not doing something good on purpose to get JP. 
What, what, what if there are no witnesses? Oh. There's never no witnesses. Well, maybe what if after I do the bad thing, there are no witnesses? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Um, right. So. So how do, how do we spend them, Joanna? So there are a couple ways. The first is the traditional way, um, which was helpfully written out as horizon expanding activities uh, and experiences. Uh, and so that, you know, sort of asking the other person to, spending JP to get the other person to have a new experience or try something new that they might not um, ordinarily do. There is a caveat, people do have veto uh, power. So you can't literally force, you can't compel somebody to do something. But there's, you know, the idea is that you it's between friends. And so we're pretty generous on both yeah. sides, right? Like if I veto something, Dylan assumes that I'm not just being a jerk to be a jerk. And I, uh, unless I have a very serious reason not to do something, don't veto, mm -hmm. right? Like, and vice versa. Right. So that's how that works. Um, and, and, so and, and the idea usage, is that you're, you're picking something that you actually at least, you know, it's risky, but you at least hope the other person will like. So I'm not going to be like, I'm probably not going to spend JP to make Joanna play competitive first person shooters because the chance of her enjoying that is zero. And so there's it's not, there's not really nothing as a Well, the chance that. of me getting to getting through one minute of yeah. it is so low that I won't even have a chance to find out whether I right. enjoy it or not, um, which is a whole other problem. Okay. Um, and then the other way we can spend it um, is to give JP to each other. Um, I put down, we put down... Um, we're thinking about using it as kind of a currency, right? So um, that's not super different from um, horizon expanding activities, but it might include things that are not about edification or just about like, I don't want to do this or I I need something to get done, like a chore yeah. or whatever. You can just be like, oh, I don't want to do you the JP. dishes. Yeah, I'll give you a JP, yeah, like, I'll give you a few, couple JP if you do the dishes this time. Or I'll give you a couple JP if you are the person who puts in all the calendar events for November well, or whatever. As you described this, this mostly just sounds like a way for me to get all of your JP. Yes, whatever. <laughs> I'm coming up with things. Dylan does all of the dishes in this relationship and also makes all of the calendar events. Although, although the calendar events thing is probably good because the last time I tried to make calendar events, it was a shit show. So that's just not my forte. It just isn't. That's okay. What, what, what right. is your forte? Um, my forte is, oh no. What's my, Dylan, what's my forte? I was thinking today, earlier today, actually about the boxes thing. I guess we should tell people what oh that is God. since we said, talk about that oh before recording. Oh my God. Okay, so. This is the argument. People who crush boxes when they recycle them, you know, like, um, undo their sides so they flatten, flatten boxes. And people who don't, they just throw the whole box in the recycling. Um, or even just out the door next to the recycling bin, as the case may be. Yeah. Um, anyway, the background, we have an argument about whether uh, people do this because they're lazy or they don't care, or if they do it because they're just, um, as Joanna once point, that most she just thought people didn't know that you could have crushed boxes. And remember when we first had this conversation years ago, the reason that Joanna believed that was that she herself did not know the boxes know. were flattenable. Until, and no, it was many years ago, but it wasn't that. No, many so years in her ago because I in her yeah, adult life, met in college. right? In her adult yeah, life, she figured out that boxes were not like immutable square things that they could be easily. Although, flattened. in my defense, you will find that that is true of many um, physical processes in me. 
Like, many of them became apparent to me. Like, I still have to use a YouTube video every time I open a can. I can't do it. I can't use a can opener without a YouTube video. It's just, it's just typical of who I am. Which is not my forte. So what the fuck is my forte? I was gonna say, that's why I brought the story up. Is that, and then thinking about this, I'm like, honestly, like, this is very silly, but Joanna probably, she is unusually bad at observing the physical world. True. And, and, well, and, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm unusually bad at everything to do with the physical world, except one thing. Which is what? Not, you know, one thing, just one thing. Which is what? Just, just the one thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but what she's good at is observing people and text. People and words. Yeah. Are your forte? I do like words. Things, that, things that are not people or words. You're usually not. Yeah, bad. the other thing I'm really bad at is visual literacy. I I've been thinking about that a lot lately because um, uh, there's a lot of data these days that people are presenting visually because it's easier to understand for everybody for, for everybody except me. And then I'm like, okay, yeah. where is the text that this is based off of? Um, and it's much easier for me to read text. So, for example, that article that about um, obesity in the United States that was great because all of the studies were text i was like i understand everything in this article uh yeah so yeah that's true um and it's one thing that can one thing that might um shed some light on this is that when i was a like small child like a toddler an infant and a toddler um they did i was uh i think you said this in the last episode actually did i talk about being delayed developmentally in the last episode i i I think Anyways, so. okay. Tell me, tell yeah. me. I'll finish the story. You can tell me if we need to cut it. Yeah. Um, Indeed, Joanna had discussed this in the last episode, and thus we learned that remembering conversations or logistics, as she called it, was also not her forte. Uh, Dylan, what's yeah, your so forte? I think we everything. Everything is your forte. Everything, oh which is to say, the video game. Everything. I'm very good at it. Video games. You are very good at video games, but that's not really a forte. That's just a fact. You need like a... No, I, I meant the, literally the game everything. The game everything is a great game, and I'm sure you're good at <laughs> um, it. But you, but... I'm actually not... The funny thing about me is that I'm not nearly as good at most games as people assume. Like, Or to put it another way, the types of games that I'm good at and the types I, of games I most enjoy are not the same thing. So like, I'm, I'm quite good at Euro games, but I'm not that into most of them. Whereas I'm really, really into like overly complicated war games and I'm mediocre at them at best. Let me think. Uh, in terms of tabletop games and video games, I'm all over the map depending on the genre. I'm thinking. Dylan, one of your for one of the things that I think of when I think of your forte is an unusual ability, an unusual, an unusual ability to appreciate characteristics in other people that are generally considered eccentric or dislikable. Oh, and well, I don't just mean like, you know, you take pity on people and therefore are nice to them. I mean, you actually think about it and find a way to really value it. That's the thing I think about. I mean, you're really obnoxious generally, but that's one mm-hmm. true thing about you. Well, I was going to say the flip side of that is then uh, there's also lots of traits that people have which are considered normal <laughs> or desirable, <laughs> which I found really irritating. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, it does. So in terms of uh, assigning JP, we're going to uh, kick things off with this episode. 
if we were smart, we would have written down how much JP we each were starting with. But we both have we both have more than ten in the bank, so we have enough to to kickstart this. Um. So Joanna, what were you assigning me to do? I mean, I think you hinted at this in the last episode, but give it more fully. Sorry, let me look. You know, into the abyss, into the abyss. Let me look into the abyss. Um, into, the, into the abyss. That the sounds abyss. like into that sounds abyss. like a um, a Harlequin novel. It does. Um... <laughs> Okay, what I'm assigning to Dylan. Um, so this is the JP assignment. This is in the Expanding Horizons category. Um, and so the um, JP assignment I came up with for Dylan is to make a list of media um, that Dylan associates with the process of homecoming. Uh, and I was very specific. I am very specific in but and uh, not like some general definition of homecoming, not like what you would find in a dictionary or like what you would see in like philosophy or whatever, but just Dylan's idea of a home and the process of homecoming for Dylan. Uh, media that are that it, that are th- thematically related to that. Um, and it, I wasn't specific about the Does kind it have of to media. Be media? Um, well, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So. So it has to be media, but it uh, can be any kind of media. It doesn't have okay. to be like just it could be articles, video games, movies, board games, whatever it is. Right. Um, music. So. Um, so that, like that was that was uh, my idea. And I will say that I originally came up with it um, in response to really to Dylan's move to Sacramento um, and certain conversations we had uh around the time that was occurring so it is in some ways kind of belated because dylan's been in sacramento for a while now but it's still very interesting so Mm -hmm. we're running with it okay yep so i will present my list uh in the next episode which will uh assuming nothing blows up be released in october um and my assignment for joanna is to play a video game i promise i won't always assign her to play video games but one thing is that you know I consume a lot of video games, and there's lots that I play. Well, most of the ones I play, Joanna would have no interest in. But there's some that I play where I'm like, Joanna would, should really play this. And there's another bunch which I haven't played and sort of saving for us to play together or do it as a book club or whatever. Um, but anyway, so I am assigning Joanna the game Tacoma, which came out in 20... Maybe last year. I think early 2017, maybe late 2016, somewhere around there. It is a first-person exploration game games they sometimes called walking simulators and it is the second game by uh, a studio called fulbright their first game was gone home which they actually like sold really well and they made some good money off of and i like pretty well uh joanna played it for like an hour and a half and bounced off it maybe if even that much and so what i assigned to you but i think joanna might actually like this one and i like this one better though this one sold like three copies Incidentally, largely because of market changes. But we'll talk about that later. Um, so basically, I gave that to Joanna to play, come back and report on, and then just how she felt about it, and then maybe also how she felt about it in relation to Gone Home, because we can talk about that a little bit too. Just so the read the readers, ha ha ha, listeners know what we're talking about. It's basically just a game that takes place in the uh, near future where uh, the player goes to a, a space station that 
has had some issues and just is investigating uh, what happened to the crew there. That's all I will say about that. That's not the one we played, though, right? No, you're Together? no, you're thinking of. I know exactly what you're thinking about. Okay, I'm just making sure um, that you're, there you're thinking a about there. twenty thousand to one, a space murder, mur- space murder, or something. It's like a weird space odyssey. It's Take very, it's a very odyssey. cute and funny game. No, it it it, it um, has some things in common with that, though. But yes, um, that is a game Joanna would have struggled with because it takes place entirely in zero gravity, and um. Okay, so I mean that's there's not much more to say there. We will repeat, revisit that uh, for future future episode. Okay, what's next, Joanna? Yep. Uh, our new discussion topics. So uh, I think we spent a lot of time having a somewhat tedious conversation about being a public librarian last podcast. Um, and as our loyal listeners will remember, we are both public librarians. Our loyal listener. Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. So, <laughs> um, our moms and dads, well, our moms and your dad will, rem- uh, will remember. I, I still haven't told them that this is how. Oh, my mom she actually listened to the first episode? I have no idea. I no think that. she didn't. I think she called me up and asked me whether she should, and I think I said no. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, yeah, she finds I, me obnoxious enough in person. Um, all right. Uh, so so we had two, two maybe more um, engaging topics about public librarianship. The first is... Uh, in the context of being a public librarian, um, what does public mean? Because right now we live in a time when everything is really partisan. Um, so you get people who come in with political views that any given librarian might find, you know, uh, anywhere from off-putting to repulsive. And then on top of it, you get a bunch of really weird questions. I've had several this week, so I'm very game to talk about this. Uh, and then the next thing we kind of want to talk about is like, so maybe you're thinking about being a librarian. Uh, what does that entail, you know, and what do you have to do and what's that process like? And then, you know, what, you know, what, what, what should you expect versus what, what maybe you might be led to believe? Um, so that's, that is sort of, we're sort of in public library land for a little while. Um, and I will kick off the discussion of what it means to help everyone with a story that's both a little bit heartwarming and a little bit sad um, about this woman. So several several months ago, I mean, it was like the holiday season, but it, it was like maybe the first year I started working there. So it might have been 2015 or two, maybe 2016 holiday season um, at the Brooklyn Public Library. This woman walks in, she comes up to the desk and she explains to me that she's in charge of New York City um, and all of the public agencies as well as the banks. And she wanted to explain to me what the new procedures of the library were to be, right? So she comes in and she explains to me that she is my supervisor and these are all the new things, right? And so when something like that happens, unless the patron is strikes me as being dangerous, generally speaking, I'll just accommodate whatever they say. I'll have a conversation with them to the best of my ability and then they'll leave, which is what happened this time. Uh, a couple months after that, she comes in and she says, you know, I'm really heavily pregnant. I'm about to give birth. I need to find a hospital, right? She is definitely not heavily pregnant. Um, she is quite possibly underfed. 
right? Like malnutrition. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a conversation about that. I do give her the address of the nearest hospital and she leaves, right? This week she comes in um, and she's, her whole demeanor is different. And she comes up and she says, I need information on schizophrenia uh, and bipolar disorder, right? Um, uh-huh. And I uh, say to her, okay. And I show her the section and they're all these books, right? And she looks at them and she, she's like, no, I need to know what they are. And then she goes, where's the dictionary, right? Like, like where are the dictionaries? Mm. And so we go to the dictionary section and we start looking them up. Um, and, and, and she's totally lucid and it's not, you know, there's no, there's, there's nothing unlike the previous two times, there's nothing about the premise, which strikes me as fundamentally disconnected with reality, right? She leaves again. She comes back and she she asks me, like today or yet no yesterday, she comes in, she asks me, she goes, What does it mean when somebody calls you schizophrenic? Right. And so then I'm like, um, thinking about what's the best thing to do in this situation, right? Like, how do you have a conversation with somebody who has maybe been told by I don't know who and how serious it is, and it's possibly even true. I have some evidence to suggest it might be true, but nothing. You know, right. I'm obviously not a shrink, right? Um, right. And how do you respond to that and what do you say, right? And so I thought about it. And what I ended up doing is I went to the APA website the um, and I just printed out everything they had. And I sat down with her for a few minutes and I said, this is what this is. I can't do anything more than what's here. Um, uh, this is, you know, this is the source. Uh, but what was good about it was that it was like a document that you could refer to um, that was mm-hmm. definitional. Um, but but it also wasn't, it didn't have that secondary element that librarians can also do, which is um, connect people with services, right? Right. And that gets really touchy because one thing that, you know, I don't really ever want to do is tell some tell a patron to get therapy, right? Like that's right. not a sentence I ever want to say to somebody, but if somebody's indicating that they might be looking for that, mm-hmm. but they don't know where to begin, right? And so I mentioned also, just so you know, the APA is a good source if you're beginning to, th- if you know, for people who are thinking about finding resources for this too. Um, and I just left it at that, right? Um, so that was the, that was an example um, of, uh, about what I think of as being fairly common in terms of type of interaction, right? Where somebody comes in and says something that's not necessarily a straightforward reference question that you sort of have to work with them and you sort of have to have an empathetic understanding of where they might be positioned relative to the thing they're asking. Yeah. One of the secrets of librarianship is that I would say that 75% of the time, like there are basically two types of questions. There's very basic questions, which are like, where do I find this book? Right. But for anything more complex than that, 75% 75% of the time, the first question you are asked is not really what they are looking for. And you have to spend a while figuring out what it is they really want. I mean, you have to balance that because you're not really, again, you're not like trying to get into the depths of their psyche and their deepest desires. But often they'll be like, oh, I'm looking for this book. When what really what they want is books on that subject and they just don't know. Or sometimes they want things they don't know how to say it. They don't know what that thing is called or whatever. But your story made me think I had a couple stories along those lines. At, at sort of different different ends of the spectrum. But I think about this also dealing with public. So one thing is I work the phones. In fact, I also um, 
do a lot of work on the phones on our phone bank, but that is, um, which has been a lot of my life recently, but it's extremely tedious. So I'm not going to talk about it here because it bored you all to um, smithereens. They had a uh, patron who called and wanted information on teachers who had been, I think it was either disciplined, basically had some sort of disciplinary process gone through by the California teachers, by the state of California, basically teachers who had lost their license or otherwise been disciplined through this system, this, the accreditation system for teachers in the state of California. And she wanted basically data on how many there were each year and if they were still working and da da da. And I went and did some digging. And I kind of said I can, and I and this and sometimes when you get a call, sometimes you just play like bloop bloop bloop. You know, I'll see what I can find. That was a this is gonna take me a while. I'll have to give you a call back. Yeah. So it took took me a while, uh, but you know, totally reasonable question. Took me a while. Uh, couldn't really find what they were looking for, but you know, found some things that were sort of adjacent to it. So I said, okay, couldn't really find that. Called them like, here's what I could find. And they started sort of telling me, oh, uh, you know, oh, here, and here's some things, here's sort of where I was going with this. And before I know it, I have gotten sucked into them teaching me many things. Uh, things I learned from this interaction are that the reason that, that America has actually been ruled by Nazis for about the last hundred years, um, the Fourth Reich, and she gives me various information on yeah. the positions of various people in this Nazi organization how Bill Clinton was really born Bill Rockefeller, who's a Rockefeller bastard, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And how, plot twist, Donald Trump is the first president who's not part of this Nazi apparatus. So the reason there's all this opposition to him is all the Nazis are trying to take him down because he's he's up into the system by virtue of not being a Nazi. This is very confusing. Yes. It would make a lot more sense if if this person replaced the word Nazi with the word Jew, then I would recognize that entire. Then you would recognize that narrative. Right. But no, but no, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. But, but, but it's, but that's the kind of thing where, you know, and if you, this person was on the street, you might ignore them. Or if you were less kind, you might be like, you're crazy or whatever. Right. But on the phone, I'm just like, okay, you know, and she's like, here, check this out on this website. You know what? I, even though she doesn't know I'm doing this, I'm like, I'm going to write that down. Like, it's just like the physical act of acting in good faith. I'm going to write down this information that she's given me. Da, da, da. And, you know, there's a point at which you can't talk about this all day. So I'm like, okay, thank you. You know, is there anything else I could help you with? Da, da, da. And, you know, but she left that reference transition happy and felt like she was listened to. And it was sort of, it was actually sort of weird because it started with me being, I couldn't find what she looked for and then her walking away happy. So I'm like, okay, that worked out. Right, that's right. Any any patron interaction in which the patron is happy at the end of it is a good interaction. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, but you deal with all sorts, and that's the kind of thing. And one thing that's interesting to me about okay, I'm going to ask you something, and you can edit. You can you can not answer. We can edit this out later. But do you remember when I first started poking into being a librarian, and you got really crabby about it? Yeah, and one of, I'm and still one of the kind reasons, of crabby about it, to shut be honest up. with you. Yeah, and one of the reasons was that you were convinced I was just doing it because I was copying you. And the second reason was that you had some insecurity that I would be a better librarian than you would be. For real. And you, and you said as much. Um, can, can, can you tell, do you remember why you thought I would be a better librarian than you or what, what traits you thought I would have? I do remember having that conversation. I don't remember what I said, though. I can't okay. remember any of the specifics about it. I, I had to pry it out of you. So there may have been some things you never told me. Um, Wouldn't surprise I, me. Because I, I, I didn't get this, like, literally it was, like, three years later that I actually learned. But one of them was that I have an ability to take people on their own terms. 
sort of when they walk up to me in a way that is harder for most people. Yeah, that's um, true. And, and so in that, and it's, and that's what I think I've learned is, is what's weird about me is when I have these interactions with patrons, I don't have that, like, you know, where you're talking about your patron, you're like, I have to stop and think about this. And like, that's a good thing, but that's not my experience. I'm just like, I'm always just in this weird autopilot where I just do my thing and it sort of works out. And for me, and I don't know, maybe this is just true of customer service jobs in general, but it's almost like I, I become a somewhat different person, but not a fake one. It's like I'm a sort of a better version of myself uh, when I'm on the desk. And so I'm, you know, I'm helping people and and there's just a way to sort of, and I think maybe part of it is that in in the world at large, being compassionate is both makes you vulnerable and some people like don't want it. Like compassion can be inappropriate to a stranger or whatever, but like in customer service, like, that's what you're there for. You're you're li- you're actively listening to the person, and you're saying, "How can I help you?" You know, trying yeah. to meet that. And for me, that's very easy when those are sort of the expectations. Um, and I mentioned this because that conversation I had about you know the Fourth Reich would have driven some of my coworkers batshit crazy and been very upsetting to them. And I don't blame them. Like I can totally understand why that. But for me, it just doesn't bother me. Other things bother me, you know, but not that. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't offend me, but I would probably feel trapped. If somebody tried to have that conversation with me, I would probably be like, how long am I going to be stuck in this thing? Right, but right. I, it's it's unlikely that I would feel angered by somebody. One thing that is true of me is that um, when I decide that somebody is too far outside of what I can take seriously, I stop being offended by anything they say. I have noticed, for both better and worse, that many people will continue to give other people the time of day and take them seriously, you know, interact with them in good faith long after they've shown that, you know, whatever's going to happen is just ridiculous. And I mean, ridiculous, like, um, and so I think that, um, you know, the other thing is that, uh, being, being a librarian at the desk, right. Specifically when you're working a shift and working with the public is that you have to, you have to sort of mediate that, right? So it stops being about what you consider reasonable and just about um, what, what can exist in the space. Exactly, what can exist in that space. And then you get into, for me, you get into logistical questions. Like, yes, so if that patron that you're talking about had come to the desk, right? There's I'm a point like, at which they, they need to move along to help exactly, the next person. Exactly, right. Yeah. But if I'm in the back on the phone, because if uh, sometimes when the desk is busy, the calls get sent to the back, and whatever I'm working on can wait, then maybe I will listen for five minutes while somebody says whatever it is they need to say, right? So it depends on where I – it becomes almost logistical, you know, where right. I am and what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But but the another story I had – this is just the two from recently – is I had someone um, come up, and he wanted to know where um, – you, one can get the the free food, the food banks and the free meals and whatever. Yeah. Um, again, very straightforward question. Very reasonable. Should be pretty easy to get that information. It's it is not. not. It it's is not. not. Because, and what's weird is that like, there actually is a sort of centralized hub in terms of like, if I look for this through the city of Sacramento, but it combines everything. So it'll combine like a food bank with a church that serves a meal on the third Wednesday of the month only for women and children, right? I know that pain. And, it, and, and if you try to print it out, it gives everything its own page. And so it'd be like a nice 50-page binder that wasn't helpful. And so trying, 
I spent like 40 minutes trying to put this together for this patron. And he, a couple times he was like, oh, it's okay if you can't do it. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going to get you something, you know. Yeah. I, you, I'm sorry I'm making you wait. You got to be patient. Like, this is really hard, but I will get you something, you know. And I got him some things at the end of the day. But but uh, one thing that came out of that was like, we were actually making a, a, have a new little committee going up to better serve patrons experiencing homelessness. I kind of led version one of this and then got assigned too many other things and couldn't really do it properly. Um, someone else is kind of carrying the torch. And one thing that you get into query quickly is kind of what's in scope for us. And, and to me, that right. seems like a perfect example. Like in theory, like someone could say that's, and some will argue that's not our job. The city should have an easy to access list like that. And it's like, it's true. They should, but they don't. And, and we're information professionals. So that's something we can do. Like we could collate all the data that's out there, make an easily accessible list have someone assigned to update it at least every six months. So it's not like completely walking out of date and send it to other organizations who want it. Right. Yeah. That's like, that, that could be a thing where the library is doing its part. Yeah, exactly. You just get into it. Um, and it's like, we, so our library uses this resource, which is actually free called Aunt Bertha. And it's a website that does something similar. You put in your zip code, but it does exactly the same thing where it yeah. will all, it'll separate like food services from other kinds of services, but it won't separate food pantries from meals or right. churches from non-churches, right? right? Like, or, you know, ones that are open every day from ones that are only open the third Tuesday of the month. Right. right. And it's just, yeah. So, and then, um, uh, it makes way more sense for me at a branch library to have a list of community organizations that someone can go to because these are all people who live in the neighborhood anyways, generally speaking. Um, but yeah, those, that question is just so obnoxious because it's such a, like such a perfectly reasonable reference question. And it is so unreasonable how hard it is to right. just answer it. You know, that one, that one question, man. Which I guess says a lot about what we value, but I know, there I it know. is. Yeah. There's definitely a lot. Public librarianship is, I mean, and this is true. This is just true of social work in general, at which like public librarianship has at least one foot in. It's a real roller coaster of cynicism and optimism. Well, on one hand, you see a lot of what American society doesn't value or doesn't think is worth time or money or whatever, and all the pain that causes and on the other hand, like, you are being paid by the government to do really cool things. And, you know, you get to help people and you get to see people do accomplish really cool things. And so it's just, it's a real mix. Yeah, I would say that if public librarianship is something that you're considering, you absolutely have to be um, at least to some degree a people person. You cannot, yeah. So like an academic librarian, um, a lot of times desk shifts are what they have to do. Um, and there, it, you, there's all kinds of research and you work with faculty and you don't necessarily have, and you're never public facing, right? But in, um, uh, but in a public library, one of your primary functions is encountering people you don't know. I mean, that's like, that's like a huge part of it, right? Is just yeah. having conversations with the public. Uh, if you can, like, so that's, that's a really big part of the job. I would say fundamentally customer service in that sense. It's like, to me, it's a very yeah. social thing. Though I would like, say, I mean, of course, the heart of it. there are librarians who are catalogers or who do other things and do not interface with the public very much. Like they work for a public library. And so in that sense, they're yeah. public librarians, but not in the sense that we are. That's and, true. 
And uh, some of them are really not people persons. It's always better to be a you should at least be a coworker people person. <laughs> but um, I will. Um, I have another example, another story that I want to tell. Um, this one is political. And it comes from a colleague. A colleague of mine wrote on Facebook, not at my branch, different place. He said, but for the same system. He said, a parent came in today and asked uh, for stories that are good for little boys. And I got really mad because that was a gendered request, right? And uh, he proceeded, you know, like to talk at length about Wait, wait, uh, your, your co-worker many valid... length about the problems? Yeah. Uh, on this okay, not to the patron. Not in the okay. library, yeah. About, right. Well, so, so um, at, you know, about the about how angry he was about the whole thing and uh so i responded and i was like you know i think you know if this is the worst you get at your library you are very very lucky and that's actually a completely reasonable reference question because we um believe as a country that boys read less and so we spend a lot of time you know in in pedagogical areas thinking about what kinds of books are boys more likely to sit down and actually read because we want boys to read more um, so actually it's, a, it's, you know, in my opinion, well, actually it's a reason, you know, it's a fairly reasonable request. Uh, and my colleague wrote back, um, well, not really back. My colleague wrote, uh, it's a shame that on my page, you know, on my profile, some people feel the need to come in and correct me when this is my, some people, events, right. And like, that was the response. Right. And, and so, you know, you look at this and you like, and I look at this and I'm like, Wow, is this, this was, you know, like, there was so many better ways to channel energy in that moment, right? So, like, that, to me, would have been a, a very pleasant reference interaction, right? Because the person isn't crazy. They're not asking me to, um, they're not. They're not asking you for something that you can't some way that I don't want to. And, and not only that, but they're not asking me for something that makes me feel a little bit guilty, right? Like, if somebody comes in and asks me for information that I know is not good like the example you give somebody comes in and wants information on on how vaccines cause autism right you know i i will do it because it is the reference request but i'm gonna feel guilty about it a little bit right this this is not a reference request right what what are good stories for little boys that's a happy request right nothing about that is bad that's good right in my opinion that's great so um and so like i look at that and i'm like and, and what I thought actually at the time, I complained bitterly to anyone that would listen to me. I was like, I was like, that guy needs to park his ass at my desk for three hours. Let him come to my desk and see if he's still upset about that question afterwards, you know. But the uh, but the truth is that um, politics are near to people in a way that other things aren't. So it's very easy for me to say about him, how can you react so ridiculously to this, you know, to this question? Um, and in other instances, I've said the same thing, right? I've had friends get, I, I had a friend get really mad at like my community in general for fat shaming Trump. And I'm like, of all the things to worry about right now, why is that on your mind? That's ridiculous. Come to find out, you know, that there's a myriad of ways in which we respond to, um, political issues because of what's happening to us, right? And what's going on in our lives. So I think um, that one other thing about being a reference librarian, or I mean, sorry, a public librarian, um, is that 
you have you really have to decenter yourself in a major way. Um, like you really, really have to fundamentally know that nothing that is it's happening about you. in that conversation yeah. is about you. Even if it is about you, it's not about you, right? If a patron comes up to you and is like, I hate your shirt, right? It's not about your shirt, right? It's not about you. Like it's just not. So if you can't do that, um, that like if that's something that you really can't do in the world, then it's gonna be really hard, I think, to I mean, emotionally yeah. difficult to And I, I, I know people who are not good at that and they do struggle. Uh yeah, and I would also say that for you and me, one thing that we have in common is that we both have a lot of experience arguing. Yeah. And if you have if what if you get to a point where you're arguing not just about like trying to push your positions on the world, but having broader arguments about ideas in general, that sort of teaches you to decenter yourself by virtue of the sort of conversations you're having. Um, and so I think that we both are unusually good at having those sort of conversations in ways that right. don't offend us, even when, if the implementation of ideas being suggested, we would find really terrible. Um, and, you know, and some people would say, oh, well, you know, of course, you guys can just say that. That's just your middle class white privilege, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's a part of it. But I think it's also just a big part of who we are um, in ways that that most of our peers are not. Um, no, not not just for better or worse, I guess I would say. Um, but yeah, it is it is a job where you just have to get over yourself a lot. And it can be hard, especially at like times right now where it does feel like if things keep getting worse, there's a point at which like, and this is a big argument people always have, right? About the civility and when is civility not appropriate? When do you drop the, you know, the facade of civility and start, you know, screaming at people and when is screaming not enough and you pick up your guns and you start shooting the people? That's, sorry, this podcast got really dark really quickly. Um, but that regardless of how you, what you feel is the appropriate line in your personal life, you do have to leave that at home at the library. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because it's not that there's nothing personal about it, right? No, like, not at all. It's just different than it, like, and that's, that's a distinction that I feel like is difficult to really consciously think about, but there's a difference between having an interaction that's personal and personable and taking something personally right. or considering it in a personal way. Right. Um, and it's weird that those are two different things, but they are. Right. Well, one thing I also think about in relation to your story about the books for little boys is that it's really easy. And again, I think this is in any customer service job to create narratives about everyone who walks in the door. So if someone, you know, so if that person goes up to that, that, and ask that question, then it's really easy for your colleague there to create a narrative about how this is a very heteronormative, traditionally gendered person who's trying to uh, make his boy be a traditional man, da, 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 right? That could be true. It could also not be true. We don't know why he's asking that question, right? In unless we have a reference interview and get more information. Right, exactly. But, but why do you want to know is never a question we ask because that's not exactly. a business. Exactly, right, right. Um, and so you just... Even if something looks bad, like to give the example of the vaccines and autism paper, maybe they're doing a research paper and they need that information for kind of the, the position they're arguing against. Yeah. You know, who knows? You don't. So you, you have to really try to leave those assumptions at the door. That's Sorry, right. Sorry, we're, 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 I'm sure this is, this has run its course now with us. Um, uh, but, so, but, okay. You go go. Ahead. No, 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 you go. Um, I was going to say, but, you know, so talking a little bit about how awkward it can be to be a public librarian, um, absolutely the coolest thing about being a public librarian is that you get to 
100% of what you do is help people. And it's 100% free in terms, like, obviously they paid for it with their taxes, but there's no money exchange there. So it's like, there are long stretches of time where, especially if you get along with your coworkers, where it doesn't even honestly feel like work. Um, It's just like, you're having it, like, you're, it's just like, I can't explain it, but I can't explain it. I'm going to explain it right now. You know, you can really feel like you're part of a community. And um, this might also have to do with being a branch library. I, don't I was going to say that's, that's, I like my job, but that is not true for me because so much of what I do is, is sort of navigating a complicated ramshackling machinery and all that. Yeah. Um, and it's, well, so I work at this branch library and it's funny because it's in this crappy neighborhood. That's not funny. <laughs> but it's, what's funny about it is that it's in this like crappy neighborhood and I know from, um, you know, the news and, you know, various sources that there are gangs in the area. I know that specifically the projects across the street, they're divided by like territory, right? So there's the front and the back. Um, and I know, personally know siblings of, you know, kids who come in all the time um, and their older brother was recently shot and killed, right? None of that is funny um, at all, obviously. But what's interesting is that within the space of the library, none of that is, you know, it is not like you would expect if you would never, if you would, you know, if you would never walked in before, right? Like, it's very much, you know, kids being kids and um, like um, adults hanging out and doing their thing. And it's like this sort of pocket community, right? Like the kids, today I ran Teen Tech Time and they were all playing Super Smash Bros. Um and it was driving me bonkers because they're all screaming at each other on the screen. And, you know, I, like every five minutes, I'd be like, guys, you're still like 10 decibels too high. Can we bring it down a little bit? They can hear you in like, you know, South America. This is ridiculous, you know. Um, and they'd all be like, yes, Miss Joanna. And then like five minutes later, I'd have to be like, guys. Um, but 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 I know them all because they're in the library all the time. Right. And like when I come to the library in the morning, much, you know, sometimes to my irritation, sometimes not. Like I'm listening to my music and people will come up on the street and tap me on the shoulder and they'll be like, Miss Joanna, are you going to work? And I'll be like, why? Yes, that is where I am walking right now. Um, I'm not known for taking unnecessary walks. Right? Who does that? (laughs) And if I was going to take an unnecessary walk, it certainly wouldn't be through East New York, God knows. But, um, and, or, or, you know, you'll run into them when you're going out to get lunch. They'll be like, Miss Joanna, are you on lunch? And it's like, yes, that, that is what I'm doing right now. Um, but like, you know, you just like. Well, and a big difference with you is you work with a lot of children from what I'm hearing. Yeah. It's, yeah. We have what's called the children's branch, which means that obviously it's a public library, so it's open to everybody, but the biggest demographic of patrons that we have is children. That's what that means. So. Uh, it means that, oh, even for an adult services librarian like me, a lot of the ideas that we come up with has to do with managing kids, right? Like, so, um, uh, we've been like, one of the things we've been thinking about a lot is that like computers are obviously the most popular, I don't know about, are the most popular thing Mm -hmm. for kids, but there's only four of them, right? Oh, really? Yeah. There's only four of them. If once you turn 13, you can start using laptop. Uh, in which case you're a little bit better off, but there are huh. only four kids' computers. So you get a lot of kids who what they're doing at the library is waiting for their turn on the computer. Oh, and so no. one of the things we've been thinking about a lot lately is what do you do to help kids who are waiting for the computer, but when they have nothing to do, because, you know, it gets real bad when they have nothing to do and they're just waiting, right? It turns yeah. into a madhouse. So 
Didn't you guys get a Nintendo Switch recently? Are we, you getting one? We did. Um, and uh, we just ordered a bunch of games. But the video game consoles only come out during supervised tech times. So that is not a thing. But so we spend a lot of time. Um, yeah, we spend a lot of time with kids. We spend a lot of time with a branch neighborhood. And I guess my whole point is just that it stops... Uh, there's a way in which it doesn't even really feel like a nine to five anymore. You know, it just doesn't feel like, right. obviously you look forward to the weekend. You were glad to have time off. It's not like, Oh man, I'm sitting here wishing I was at work right now, but it's, but when I am at work, I don't watch the clock. You know, I don't think about it. And I, it's, it's very socially gratifying in a way that I would not have expected a job to be. Nice. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, should move on from library stuff. I'll maybe give my my version of that in a different episode. So I think uh, next up is my game club. So today I'm talking about what may be my favorite uh, game trilogy of the last decade, and that is the Banner Saga. Uh, the Banner Saga, as the name suggests, is a uh, series of games modeled uh, loosely on the Icelandic sagas. And I really like it. I'll get to that more in a bit. It was uh, originally kickstarted in March of 2012. Uh, And what they were kickstarting was both the first game, just called The Banner Saga, but also committing to making three games. And the idea being that your choices could carry from one game to another. And it had a couple things going for it. This is actually one of the few big kickstarters of that era that I didn't back. And the main reason was that, you know, when you have a when you're doing a Kickstarter, there's always kind of, who are you? Why should we trust that you're going to make this great game that you say you'll make? And their thing was that they're mostly ex-Bioware people. I didn't care much for what Bioware was doing, so I kind of was like, eh, probably not for me. Uh, but how, how wrong I was. So they were trying to do a couple different things with this game. First, what it was going to be an Icelandic saga about a very slow end of the world. Or at least a, an end of the world, not of the the sort one normally sees in video games. Because mm. video games, normally there's like some bad person and they're going to end the world and you have to stop them, right? You have to race to stop the thing that will end the world. The, the If I to paraphrase the game's opening, there's just a guy on a cart and he says... It has been several long months on the road. The first signs of snowfall accost us on our approach to Strand, largest of the trade cities on the Val human borders, and our last collection before returning to the capital. Several days ago, the sun simply came to a stop in the sky. Though during these long winter days, none of us can be certain how long it has been this way. Some of the men in the caravan have taken it as a dire omen. And it kind of goes from there to start superstition. Characters and different I parts myself of this world. will be glad uh, to be done made with this really have a couple different One of it is it has this sort of dialogue-centric adventure game component. Another one is that basically there's like these guys called the Dredge, who are these sort of ancient enemies who are just coming down from the north and laying waste to everything. So you and whoever you can gather up start fleeing south to escape them. Um, And so that is, uh, the banner is this giant banner you have on your cart. 
that you kind of slowly go and on the screen the way it's displayed in the game is it's like side scrolling and it uses a technique called parallax scaling where you have different layers of the background sort of scale at different rates so you get like a real sense of distance cool and one of the big boxes they want to check with this game is that there was an artist named Ivan Earl and he's most famous for working uh doing a lot of cell art for Disney in the early days so probably like 50s through 70s something like that and so he has very distinctive character art but he also drew a lot of their backgrounds a lot of the scenery. So they basically said, let's make a game where the entire game looks like the cell panels from Disney Animation. Where normally what games will do is you'll have this elaborate concept art and then they have to translate that into polygonal graphics somehow. But this game is like just concept art come to life. So it's just all 2D, but they use um, extensive like rotoscoping on the animations. So it has really good animations for the combat, which is the other portion of the game. It has really interesting turn-based combat because you will get into various troubles along the way. And I guess I want to talk about specifically all the things I think it does well and why I like it. But one thing I'll say is that, you know, there's such a thing as failing forward. And this is a game whose who, every, all of its faults, or all the things that people might perceive as faults are things that reinforce the game's central theme and, and um, central structure. And they all feed back into I understand it. what you're nothing, saying. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing's just like an accidental screw up. And so it's definitely not for everyone. It's not a game where I'd run around to everybody and be like, you should definitely play this. But it's really, really good on its own terms. And it's doing a, a few things. So one is that you have this group of people. And again, it, it cycles between stories in the first game. Ultimately, some people see But you have a growing cast of characters and you have combat. And people can die. It's not permadeath in the sense that when they die in combat, they die. They only die through narrative and story stuff. But... The world is ending, things are rough, people are starving, it's kind of nasty, and so people will die, and it really wants you to not save scum and, you know, mess with those choices. But it's not, like, I think a lot of times when people think of that sort of cynicism, people are dying left and right, people think of something like, you know, The Walking Dead or something, which is just, like, hyper-cynical take on humanity, and that's not really what's going on here. It's stoic, again, in the way of, of the sagas. And in fact, the studio making it is Stoic Studio. That bad things are happening, but that's not a comment on humanity or anything. It's just people surviving, making it to the next day. And there is beauty in the world. And there is, you know, bards who sing their poetry. And, you know, there's there's humor along the way, um, even as people drop like flies. Uh, and because of both the death and various other things, the game has a lot of branching. And it all seems to be like pretty sincere. But it also does things where, like, sometimes you'll make a decision in the fourth hour of the game, and that decision will cause somebody in the tenth hour of the game to die because of that earlier decision you made. So you can't even, like, unload it and be like, oops, so I don't want that guy to die. It forces you to just move on, and I really like that. So for some people, that lack of control, them saying, how would I know that doing this thing would cause this thing later on, right? It's not entirely random, but sometimes, like, obviously you wouldn't have picked that thing if you knew yeah. it would turn out badly. But I think the games are like, that's life shit happens like this is just a game where shit happens um sometimes you do really cool things uh and you're just faced constantly with difficult decisions about balancing your resources and your people and your loyalties and your ideals that does sound yeah great. and it's really things but there is a lot of really crunchy tactical combat in it uh and so for there's there's some group of people a lot of games games tend to often stick within their genre so you have a lot of tactical combat games that are just all tactical combat, right? And that's very easy. If you like that, you play it. If you don't, you don't. Their most print, the normal adventure game is like dialogue and puzzles and dialogue. 
in puzzles, right? But this is a game where there's a group of people who would love the narrative stuff, but don't like what is sometimes difficult tactical combat and tactical combat that be it uses a distinct system such that if you do the things that would normally win you these games, you will actually lose really quickly. Like you have to actually observe the systems and learn from it rather than just using your transmittable gaming knowledge, which I really liked. So I actually did not find the game that difficult, generally speaking. But there are some people who are totally competent gamers who found it really hard because they couldn't unlearn what they have learned from previous games. Yeah. And of course, over the game, it has these RPG systems. So you level up different characters, you give them different abilities, you find artifacts of power and amulets and things that you equip to people. Uh, and one thing that's cool is that that carries throughout the series. So when I start the second game of those who are still around, everyone has the exact same level, the same items equipped to them, have learned the same skills, have earned the same titles, whatever. And that's cool. really unusual because pretty much it's one of these almost a joke at this point in gaming, which is that games always want to start you at level one, right? They never want you. So you generally will have a game where you have some you know, level one person, they get all these powers and then something happens in game two and they lose all their powers or they have amnesia or something, 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 right? And this game doesn't pull that crap. You just keep carrying on. And by game three, that can balloon into some balance issues. Like I think some people will have it much harder or easier than they would just based on kind of what they came into the game with. But it really re rewards your choices and, and doesn't fake it out. Uh, one thing I guess I would say I kind of wrote my notes here is, is this question of making choices matter, which is one of the hardest thing to do in video games. Cause when you're talking about choices in the narrative sense, you know, if you have branching choices, everybody knows that this is ultimately unsustainable, right? You have branch A and B and then C and D and da da da, and it becomes exponential. You can't do infinite branching. There's not enough time in the world. So games will generally either have very few real branches and a bunch of like fake backs or loopbacks, or they'll use a bunch of smoke and mirrors to make it seem like your decisions mattered when actually if you went and replayed the game and made different decisions, you'd end up back on the same point. And by and large, this one seems to really do branching. And you can sort of tell because there's a lot of scenes that are like, you know, you always have to replay to really do that, do that. And they may be using some really good smoke and mirrors, but there's also a lot of scenes where like, there are characters in there and the whole scene is built around those characters. And you know that those characters could have died. And there's other characters who are dead who you won't see those scenes from, you know? Yeah. And the writers right. actually actually talked about that. There's one character who, as sort of like an almost meta joke, the game really, really wants to kill. And there's an achievement for making it through the first game without him dying. And there's just one of him. So like 3% of players will make it through without, without this guy buying the dust. But for those 3%, they had to write that character into the second and third games and give him a complete arc, you know? <laughs> and by the third game, they're like, God, we were so stupid. Why did we do this to themselves? You know, and they yeah. said there, there will absolutely not be a Banner Saga for no way in hell, because um, we can't do it. And I think, and and in fact, the Banner Saga. So the first one came out in 2012. The second one came out in 2014, uh, and it wasn't Kickstarter because they still had money from the first one. The third one they went back to Kickstarter, and that came out uh, just in July, I think, uh, just a couple, couple, maybe even August, just a couple months ago. Does it end in a satisfying way where you don't feel like you need another game? Yes. Yes, very, very much so. I think so. I will say that the ending's a bit rushed. And I think what happened, um, my mom is actually calling me in the middle of this podcast, but too bad. I'm on a podcast. Do um, you think I should answer it? Uh, just to make sure it isn't emergency. Okay. It. Okay. Hold on a second. 
Oh my God, Greenwood is on the podcast. Hi, hi, mom. I'm doing okay. I'm actually recording my podcast right now. That's okay. Now I know you're. You, oh, I can edit it out, but you cannot. We can have this phone call on the podcast. Um, <laughs> she okay. She says hi. Hi, hi, Lisa. Okay, she says hi also. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. I'll call you back later tonight. I know we haven't talked in a while. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, you're only sorry because you're okay. being recorded. That's okay. why you're okay. sorry. Okay, bye. <laughs> Did you say I'm only sorry because it's being recorded? That's right. No, That's I actually, I, I actually just thought like yesterday, or the day before, man, I really need to call my parents. What you should do is you just give your mom a regular time to call you, and then it's like an alarm. You know, it's like oh, it's mom o'clock. And we'll all, and we'll all, I, I know that's what you. Well, she calls me at Wednesday at ten in the morning. I, my my relationship, my relationship with my parents is more fluid than that. Um, okay. Is that anyway, so? fluid, huh? Stop it. I want. <laughs> I'm just gonna get completely off my um. Off your nuts. So the ending was rushed. So the ending was a little rushed, and I and what I mean by that, the third game is literally shorter than the first two games. And I think what happens is that by the time the third game rolls around, there's so many permutations. It's a game that, again, because it's has a lot of mysteries. It's a game that's very big about having mysteries and sort of letting things linger and, and unfurl slowly. And I like that. It's not like plot twist, plot twist, right? It's slowly figuring things out about characters and what's going on in the world. But they probably put off a little bit too much of the figuring till the end. And I think the, the idea that they probably had in their heads was that the third game would be the same length as the first two, and that would give them sort of enough time to flesh that out. But the problem is that there's so much branching and so many permutations that they have to write for that the game, instead of being like this, it's like this. I'm making hand motions on a podcast, which completely translates, obviously. <laughs> but what I mean is that instead of like one long scenario, there's like five mutually exclusive shorter scenarios, just in terms of the comment they build. So um, it has the benefit of you get there and you really feel like this is your story. I mean, it's very specifically here to you. But it does, and the one thing the series does, which I don't like, is there's a point right before the end of the game where a character's like, okay, let me tell you what's, what's, what's going on here. And then there's like a two and a half minute cutscene, which is a lore dump. And you're like, and that's why the world's like it is right now. And it's like, it's really artless relative to everything that's come before. But you get to make decisions in response to that information. Those decisions are what the choices that you have available are influenced by what you had before. And it has the sort of ending, which I like, but is maybe leaves things a bit too open and then the credits roll. And then there's a really, really, really lovely post-credit sequence, which to me just made me so happy. And is about, you know, is about the story itself and the saga and what they have recorded. Because there is sort of a meta narrative in the story, among other things, that there's a couple bards around running around who are recording the Banner Saga, and one of the, there's an open question as to whether their stories will even survive this this thing, right? Because of course they're writing the story, but if the world ends, then no one will ever read that story, right? And that was really lovely. And I remember I after I finished it, I went and read a review on Steam where the person had clearly not waited until after the credits and is like, and that's just the ending, and that really disappointed me. And I was like, no, but there's no way to respond to his review. So I went and tried to friend him on Steam just so I could send him a message being like, no, it's just so you know, you can watch something after the credits. And he never accepted my friend request. So I'll never know. (sighs) What a poop. Yeah. And then the the one downside of the game or the one, the issue that otherwise sympathetic people have with it is that it can be kind of a slog. 
like you're going and there's another battle and then something bad happens and then there's another battle and then this and then this and again and i totally get like i'm someone who doesn't really like grindy games i get not being into that but again that reinforces the central themes right because these are people who are literally trudging across the known world by foot to to get where they're going and takes them multiple games oh and the one thing i will say that is amazing about this game is that from like the very first scene, like there are different buttons in your interface and you have a map, right? And you can open the map and it's this beautifully illustrated map where you can then go and click on every name and every forest and everything and learn about the history of the world. Uh, who was the guy that this town was named after and what was his story? What is this mountain range like? Um, how deep is this lake and what ships have gone down in there? Like you can literally spend hours just looking at this map. Um, All right. So... Uh, overall, oh, and the final thing, which I can't believe I didn't mention, is that it has some of the best music ever put in a video game. There's a guy named Austin Winnery, who's kind of a, a big to-do in the game composer world, uh, really competent, but he gets a full-on orchestra with um, Icelandic and Norse singers and using traditional like instruments that you never hear in video games. And so it sounds completely like anything else. Um, it's haunting. It's, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have the words to talk about orchestral music, you know, with, but it's really, it's really something and it really makes the game. Uh, so that would be, yeah, I would basically, if, if, if I would recommend it to anyone who both is really interested in game storytelling and is open to some tactical combat, because that is a big part of the game. If that you're not into that, then you're not going to be into this. And that's that's what I have to say about the Banner Saga. So what's next on our agenda, Joanna? It's off to you. Um. Yeah. No. So now we're on to the book club portion, um, and I think that the book for this, I think I know that the book for this month is A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. Uh, and I'm very fond of this book, but one of the reasons why I'm very fond of it, it's fiction, it's technically literary fiction, um, although I think that a lot of people associate literary fiction with homework or books that are difficult to get through. Mm. Books about adultery. One of them. This is not one of them. So that's a funny association. Why books about adultery? I, I remember there's, there's, uh, there's this quote from, from Joel Haldeman, who wrote The Forever War. Which is, I think it was, um, that often earnest, well-meaning professors tell college students to write what they know. Which is why so many uh, first novels are about literature professors contemplating adultery. <laughs> uh, but just, I mean, but just uh, the, the core of so much literary fiction is family drama and relationship drama. Yeah, right. So, uh, well, so this book is no different. Um, it is, what, but one of the things that makes me very happy about it is, so Brooklyn Public Library is a, collection is large enough that it it's actually too big for the number of shelves we have total in the system so there's a bunch of books we have in our collection that you can't find on the shelf you can they're put on them on site storage they're on on-site storage but oh. you don't have access um and so if you put it on hold it'll get to you really pretty quickly because it's still coming from central but it's in it's in storage at central so one of the things, one of the ways that books end up there is that if they're not high circulating, right? They don't think that a lot of people are going to request them. And Ruth Ozeki's books are some such. How did I find Ruth Ozeki's book? Dylan, what is the name of the bookstore we were at? 
Um, we were at Moonraker Books. Moonraker Books, which is where? Which is in the town of Langley, Washington. In Langley, Washington. And I... They on Whidbey Island. On Whidbey Island, which is in the Puget Sound. Puget? Puget. Puget, Puget Sound. Um, and uh, I was looking at the shelves, the recommended uh, staff recommendations, and this doesn't happen to me very often, but I came across a shelf where I was looking at the books, and I realized that who, whichever staff person had put that shelf together, that person had very similar reading interests to mine. It doesn't happen very often, but one of the reasons why I knew it was the case is because it had a sci-fi book next to a literary book next to the, the different types displayed there. Yeah. And then also the sort of depth of, of, um, of character complexity that it was obvious that the books went into. I was like, this person, man... So I wrote down all of their recommendations and I promptly went back to Brooklyn Public Library and put them all of them on hold. And one of them was A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. And I feel a little bit like I've discovered a treasure because it was in storage, which means that it wasn't high circulating. Which is weird because I swear it like won a big, like the Man Booker or some big literary It was prize. shortlisted, but what she's most famous for is a book called My Year of Meats, which mm-hmm. I haven't read um, because I haven't read it yet. But so... So A Tale for the Time Being is great. The first thing you need to know about it, one of the things I love about it is that um, A Tale for the Time Being, you we all know the phrase the time being as in, you know, temporarily or for now. But right. um, in this case, it refers both to that, but also a being of time. A being immortal, of time, yeah. Immortal, right? So that's how it starts. Um, that's just the title, right? And then the book is split between two different perspectives. There is a young girl in Japan uh, who is getting bullied all of the time and is planning on killing herself and she's writing a diary. Now that's the premise. That's how the book opens, but it's obvious from the very beginning that, that it's not a given what will actually happen to this girl. Right. Um, It's just that what she says she's decided to do at the beginning of her diary. The other perspective is the diary washes up on a beach um, on an Island uh, that is, I think technically Canada, it's an island. Um, is it? Is it Newfoundland? Is it? I think it has a whale. Labr- Labrador. Whaleton. Whale town. Whale town is the name of the town, but oh. I don't know what the name of the island is. Oh, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's either Newfoundland or it's the one next to them. There were some whaling islands on yeah. Canada. I know what you're talking about. Okay, so the so the author puts herself into the book. So she's living on this island, and the diary washes up. Right onto the shore and she and her husband um, theorize that maybe it's um, a result of the tsunami, right? Like maybe Mm. this journal is washing up. That's, that's conjecture on their parts. Um, And she, the author, the novelist who is both the actual novelist of the novel, but also a novelist in the novel um, is trying to currently, she's attempting to write a memoir about um, caring for her mother who died of Alzheimer's and there's a lot of fear surrounding her own fate, you know, whether she's also going to have Alzheimer's or not. Um, and that sort of shapes, um, and she is Japanese American and she, uh, has this book in Japanese that she's in this diary in Japanese that she's gotten. And it goes back and forth between the two perspectives. Um, uh, and the, and so is it that ostensibly she's then translated this diary into English for our consumption? Uh, no, it's just no. that it's in English diary parts, but that's, she doesn't. Uh, okay. 
Maybe maybe it does end up being translated, but I don't think so. But she, okay. um, but to the young girl, has put down in the beginning of the diary, she's like, before I kill myself, I just want to tell the story about my grandmother, who is um, like a Buddhist, like a Buddhist priest. Um, and she's very, but before that, she was like a wartime political activist. And she's really cool. And I just want to tell her story. And then I'm going to go kill myself, right? Um, and so throughout the, you know, uh, book, you see their narratives wind together. And one of the things that I really like about this novel is that, you know, it kind of takes you by surprise, right? So um, some really um, sort of horrible things happen to this girl. She describes these scenes that are just very upsetting about things that were done to her at school, right? But her her learning trajectory is one in which she comes to realize by the end of the book that, that there are people, including her own relatives, who have suffered just as much or more, right? And she it's a very interesting way to take the book. And it's not that you feel less for the girl, but it gives you this kind of bizarre perspective, right? And it's unusual in a novel to have that perspective on pain, right? right? To have a main character's pain be relative, right? That's not right. usually the case. Um, but... All of that aside, it's also just a very easy read. The one thing I will say about it is that the ending is both, to me, a little bit too much about gratifying the reader and a little bit too hasty. Yeah. Um, but overall, it's probably the best book that I've read since God of Small Things, which in terms of, of that type of fiction, which was which I read for AP English in high school. So that gives oh. you some idea of how much I liked it. Wait, wait. So it's even better than The Constructionist? That's never going to enter into it. That's just out there to the left, to the left. It's over there. We're not worrying about that. Um, <laughs> but you should read The Constructionists because it, you should, but that's different. Um, so uh, what's I going to say? Right. So that's pretty much it. I think you should read it. Um, if you, uh, okay. So what type of person should read this book? I don't think you have to love literary fiction to enjoy this book, but you do have to, you know, typically be the sort of person who finishes book. It's it's not a page turner, right? Like right. you're not going to sit there and be like, I can't put this book down. I have to know what happens next. So when you say it's easy to read, you mean like relative to sort of the big literary, the way big literary novels normally are. Right. And also it's written in very, ex like, you know, a kid writes like a kid and the woman just right, writes right. like there's it's, no... It's not, it's not turgid or It's or not flowery. dense. It's not yeah. tedious, you know... Like, what I think of is, like, even a book like Beloved by Toni Morrison or Lolita by Nabokov, right? They pop into my head first when someone says literary novels. Those books take a little bit of time just to really understand what you're looking at, right? right. That's not the case with A Tale for the Time Being. You you know what you're reading. Um, so uh, I, I would recommend it. It is my official recommendation for this month, A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. That is O-Z-E-K-I. Okay. That's that. Okay, it sounds like I should put that on my to-read list. Uh-huh. Um, while, um, speaking of The Constructionist, can you tell us for a moment what that is so I don't just, I'm not making this weird, obscure reference? Oh, The Constructionist is a novel that I wrote. I self-published it. You can find it on Amazon. The Constructionist by Joanna Tover Price. Look it up. Give it a read. I lent my copy of The Constructionist to a friend of mine, and they recently wrote me saying... I have been reading The Constructionist and really loving it. The characters are so relatable, and the ideas and conversations all remind me of philosoph 
philosophizing late at night in the Dakin house office. It's really tender and funny and smart. I'll write a review once I've finished and reach out to Joanna too. It's also exciting to read this while I'm working on my own story project. I think Joanna's story concept is pretty ambitious, but I see her pulling it off, which makes me feel like it is possible for me to do so also. That's extremely sweet. Isn't it? Oh, Lord. Okay, that's, wow. Um, <sighs> yeah, I can, I can honestly, of all the people who have read the book, um, I can count a number on one hand who really appreciate it. So it's nice that that person is one of them. Yeah. Um, I will say the um, person who suggested that, uh, what did they say? What did they say? I have to look it up now. I don't want to brag. Am I bra I'm bragging. I'm sorry, guys. Just, just. Are you looking at your, uh, is this a review? Is this the review by James? No, although that one was really good too. It's, hold on, let me find the reviews. Perhaps Joanna Tober Price is the love child of Thomas Pynchon and David Foster Wallace. Stranger oh. things have happened. Ah! Uh, whatever. Who, who the, f that person must know you. Yeah, they probably do, but it There's worked. No, like, it worked I so know, well. I'm I know. So That's just like planet. That's just like planet. Oh, yeah. I don't care. I, everybody should plant something like that. Plant it. Yeah. Oh, so Which great. Is funny because you don't even like. I, I don't like mention that much. <laughs> it's true. Uh, David Foster Wallace, on the other hand, but really only is nonfiction. But that's okay. You used to like his fiction. No, I think like I like his novels, and I think they get progressively better. I actually like the one that he wrote that was published posthumously the best. I like it even better yeah. than Infinite Jest. The King. The Pale King. The, final, the Pale. The Pale King. Yeah. I like that one the best. Um, but I think um, my favorite work that he did ever was an essay collection because I've read it all now. It was the essay collection called um, "Consider the Lobster"? Consider the Lobster. Yeah. I know. That's that's why I can say it along with you. That's the one, and I think that his earlier fiction, a lot of people like. There's this short story called "A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again." that everybody loves because it's very humorous. It's about how terrible cruises are. Um, but I find it to be uh, obnoxious in several ways. Uh, and I think his writing, and the problem is I read it in the other direction. Like I read Consider the Lobster first. Uh. And then I read, went back and read the, anyways. But but if you but if you do anything, um, look up his Kenyan commencement speech. Just, that's a YouTube video. Just I do know, that. I know, I know. Everyone does it. Just do that. Okay, anyways, that is none of that. Okay, so we need to move on to Media Club. Media Club. Okay, so Media Club is where we both talk about media that we've actually both uh, experienced rather than just one of us. So it might be different things, different months. Um, but this month, it is two games that we have played together. Yep. The first one is a game called We Were Here. And the second one is a game called Card Hunter. Uh, we'll take them in order. So We Were Here is a game that uh, neither of us had played before, but I was looking for some good co-op games for Joanna's very particular case. Actually, Joanna generally doesn't like co-op games, so that's a first important cause. Just working with other people. Yeah. Screw them. She's not like, she does not, she's not a team player. But this one, I thought the concept was interesting enough that she might enjoy it, which is the first, it's sort of a first-person adventure-style game of the sort that she might play. Sort of like Mist, but not like static screens, more like walking around in full 3D environments. But the conceit of We Were Here is that it's a game you play with two players, no more, no less. And they are both, you're in, you're like gone through the snow. You're in like Antarctica or who the hell knows where. And you come across a castle and you both guys make it into the castle and you become separated. And then the, throughout the entire game, you are physically separated from one another. Um, so you don't see 
what the other person is seeing. You don't hear what the other person is hearing, but you need information that the person has. And one person's the explorer where they're exploring through this castle and trying to make That's it right. through various puzzles and traps and whatever. And the other person is the librarian and they're in a much smaller place with a bunch of information that they have information, but they have no context for what it means. And both players immediately find a walkie talkie. So you can talk to each other. And so, and so I, in this case, in this game, I'm the explorer and Joanna was the librarian. And I'm like, okay, I see this. I see this gate. It has a purple gem on it. Da, da, da. And Joanna can look at her documents and try to find things that are relevant. So you're just doing this communication. Um, one thing that's interesting is that if you use the in-game walkie-talkies, just like real walkie-talkies, you can't both talk at the same time. You can't like, so it's very much like one yeah. one at a time communication, which I think is actually really interesting. It is, yeah. Um, I think that what I liked about that game is um, it is a little bit like keep talking and what is it keep talking and nobody explodes or nothing explodes and nobody explodes yeah which i still haven't played but i own but the idea of that game is that one person can disarm the bomb and the other person knows how to disarm the bomb and you have a specific has has a manual and they have a specific period of time with which to keep the bomb from exploding now similarly with uh we are here um we are we were were here here. we were similarly with we were here there's a there's a mechanic, you know, you can lose, right? Like the game can end because you didn't do something in time or, you know, both characters didn't get to. Like, for instance, if you're outside in the snow and there's a puzzle you have to solve to open the door and you don't solve it in time, then the explorer freezes to death. And so then you reload the puzzle and you still don't solve it in time and you freeze to death again. And so then you reload the puzzle and you still don't solve it in time and you freeze to death again. Isn't Dylan wonderful, guys? Um, <laughs> that so would, That would be an example. But of, but so what's what's better? Like, so the game has the same mechanic, but it's the context is such that it's less tense, right? Like, because you're not disarming a bomb, right? And there's, certain, there's a certain, like, way in which that's, that's nice. You know, it feels... I think that one of the things that I like about that game is that it had about it a sense, like the co-op sense struck me as being extremely realistic. Um, And in a lot of games, there is a lot of co-op games or there are a lot of things involved um, that, that are basically like the game having agency. And that was a less so in this one. So I think of board games a lot when I think of co-op games Mm -hmm. and I think of, you know, the game puts out this many enemies onto the board or the game does this, right? right? And there's no other player in the game. There's no other actor. There's no non-playable right. character. There's just the two players. And there's something about that and then also the lack of tension because you're not, you know, you're not trying to keep something from exploding, right? And so it... Well, it's, ex- it's except, except for the creepy puppet. At the end. And that was very annoying. Yeah, there's a creepy puppet at the end. But... That's okay. I feel almost. I, I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna spoil the twist because it's not much of a twist and it doesn't really matter. Um, the game has a ver- like the game storytelling is very like you'd have to spend a lot of time investigating and thinking about things to really understand what was going on. Which both of us were too intellectually lazy to yeah. do. We mostly just went through for the puzzles. Um, but it's true that at the end there is a door with a switch. There's like a gate, and one person can stand on the gate, and the other person can walk through it. So only one of you can make it out alive. Apparently there's, or just not make it out a lot, just make it out at all. Um, and I, I looked up, there's certain like secret ending you can do where you both do it if you do certain things, but whatever. So, uh, so I saw this and I figured this out very quickly. And so I thought, I almost told Joanna to stand on the switch 
and then just made a break for it and see if I could do that before she figured it out and moved, which I probably would have been able to. But I didn't have the heart. Isn't he so sweet? Instead, I'm just, so instead, I was like, okay, Joanna, I'm going to stand on the switch. And I just like started to make a little bit of a speech about like, how he's letting her go. But she didn't even she didn't even let me get a word out. I just like some switch and she just like ran out and the game ended. <laughs> I must have wanted out. Anyway, I was like, it's a far, far better thing. Roll credits. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, we, we and it's a free game. So we encourage you everyone to try it. There is a it's made sort of by by a group of amateur game makers. They made a paid sequel called We Were Here Too, as in T-O-O. Um, and there is a third game coming out shortly. So that's cool. Um, and uh, and reading reviews of the second game makes me want to throw things at people. Because every time you release a game that's, you know, three to four hours long, which a lot of the games we'll be playing are, are short, there's people who feel that short games should cost peanuts, and so they'll charge $10 for a game, and it'll be, you know, yeah. three or four hours long. And if it's super good, people will be like, $10 for only three to four hours? This is a highway robbery, da-da-da. And it's really weird to me, because we don't demand that of any other medium. Like, if theater, if movie tickets are $10, and you go and watch a two-hour movie, people are not, like, right. saying that movie, oh, that was an amazing movie, but it was totally not worth it for $10 for that two-hour experience. But for some reason, with games, we we want them to be much longer for it makes no I sense to me whatsoever, and yeah. it's honestly very annoying. I would rather pay 50, 60 bucks for, like, four hours of really good content than right. any amount of money for for a 60-hour game, 30-hour game. Right. No, I just don't. I am never going to play a game yeah, that You long. don't have – you're right. Yeah, and I, I will. I love my 60-hour games, though it should be noted that I like my 60-hour games that aren't, you know, just padded yeah. full of the same stuff that actually have content. And, you know, I'm happy to pay I'm happy to pay my $60 for a 60-hour game. My sister just recommended me a game called Stacking, though. That's neither here nor there, but I was thinking about it because I just talked about buying it. I, I, um, I have also recommended you a game called Stacking multiple times have. in the past, and then you apparently ignored it until your sister said it. Um, I think you, I do think you would like Stacking. Um, I think it's a little bit better with a gamepad, but it's not really necessary. Um, so if you play that, we can talk about that in a future episode. Um, so we played that. Um, we've also uh, have played and are still playing a game called Card Hunter. Yeah. Unlike we, unlike we were here, I've played Card Hunter before, though in its solo mode. Um, as originally released, it had no co-op, and it was one of my favorite games of the year. It was released, and I'm. It's a game that I'm a little bitter about because it was. A free-to-play game that, unlike most free-to-play games, is extremely generous, gives you a bunch of story content, is not pay-to-play, doesn't try to, you know, push you around to get you to buy loot boxes or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, And it ended in this weird place where a lot of its target audience was like, I don't want to play it because it's free-to-play and I'm suspicious about free-to-play games. And then for the free-to-play audience, they were just happy to keep playing Hearthstone yeah. or whatever the hell. And so I think it's really, really good at what it does, but... It like it. No one went bankrupt, but I think it's a game that you know has a small audience, and that's at when I, in my mind, this game should have been huge because it's really, really good and it's free. Um, but that's me. I, I won't talk. You you tell me more about your impressions of Card Hunter because it's fresher for you. Um, I really like Card Hunter. Uh, I like the turn based aspect a lot. Well, you know, when I was younger, I feel like I really hated turn based, and I've really come around to. Um, 
so it's like, it's it's nice, you know, because I haven't really played many games because I've sort of avoided them, even though it's probably all things considered the kind of combat that I would be best at. So, right. so it's going to be... When part of it so. is, is presumably like you avoided them, but then you played a bunch of board games, which are by definition pretty much all turn-based. Yes, although I will say that, yeah, I agree with that, um, but not a lot of combat, and I still don't... Um, a game, a game uh, with combat in it has to be both elegant and simple for me to appre- to really like it. Like mm-hmm. I have to be impressed by the mechanics while it also not being too fiddly. Um, which is you, you want it to be more abstract than simulative. Yeah, right. And I want it to be. I want it like I want it to match a system in a way that I like. Right, in a way that strikes me as aesthetically pleasing. Um, which isn't you know isn't necessarily a reasonable ask i'm just not a big war games person so that's how that breaks down for me you're 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 shallow that's all Uh, i'm just shallow yeah no um so and i think also um the games that i really loved one thing that this gets back into the list of things that i'm terrible at right fine motor control is not high on the list of things that i'm great at which means that for me playing a game on god mode um which is for those of you who don't know a game where you can't die and you have permanent health and it's like you know you're you're rigged to win in every way is still a game yeah. for me right like it's still hard it's a cake i played yeah. well i was 13 but i played dragon order of the flame on god mode um and it uh and it was still not the easiest thing ever for me to beat um i'll say that one thing about that is that there's a lot of in that game there's a lot of jumping and if you fall if you fall off the map, that's it. Right. So that happened to me a couple of times or, um, yeah, you know, things like that. And it just, it's, or figuring out what to do or who to kill a lot of aiming things. Like it took me a while to get things destroyed that needed to be destroyed, even though I wasn't dying. It just, it was an actual game for me, even though it would not have been for any other human. Right. Like, and so another thing about, about my gaming experience, something like card hunter is that, all of that is sort of un, is t- is taken out, right? Like the way that game is played, because you because know, it's a card game and you're looking at stats on cards. You know, I, I was gonna say I don't want to interrupt your train of thought. Do but it. We should probably take a stop a step back and tell them what Card Hunter actually is before we get into the weeds of why it's cool. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, <laughs> that's okay. You 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 you, you do the describing, though, not me. Okay, okay. So Card Hunter is a game that is the best way to put it is that it's a it's a for a game that's about playing essentially not D&D um, in the 80s. So in Card Hunter, it operates at two layers. So at one layer, you're just some person sitting at your friend Gary's table. And you're like, you're all like, what, probably like 14, 15, mm-hmm. you know, like teenagers uh, in his mom's basement playing Card Hunter. Uh, Card Hunter being a game that is much like D&D, except that uh, it uses tactical grid combat. Uh, which actually modern D&D does, but didn't back in the day. Um, but with all the trappings of early D&D, so like all the rolling for encounters and tables and rules lawyering and all that. So there's this frame story about Gary uh, and his obnoxious older brother, Melvin, who is the experienced dungeon master and who always tells him that he's doing everything wrong. And at least at the part we're getting to, Karen, who's the 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 girl who delivers the pizza they constantly order, who Gary develops a little bit of a crush on. Um, and so there's that level, but then of course in the game, you are your heroes, um, going in, playing this tactical combat and the combat, as Joanna notes, is card driven. So basically when you equip 
In this game, when you equip, like, an axe to your warrior, the axe is in, like, 10 strength, 2d4, whatever, the axe is just a set of cards, a set of six cards, and some of them will be good and some of them won't be, but you kind of have to take them all as a whole, and that's how you build your character. So when you get loot, you get, you basically build a character's deck. Um, and then every turn you draw cards and you have, you know, movement cards and block cards and magic spells and abilities and whatever. Um, so it's one of these games that is generally, it's, it's really easy to, to, to get your head around initially because it's like, you know, you play a card to move two and you play a card to attack and it's four damage, right? It's very simple. But there's a lot of complexity and depth to building your characters and to doing certain things in the game. Um, and then you'll counter different types of monsters. And then each one has a framing. So like you'll go on an, an adventure and it'll have its like little adventure module and you'll read the, the Dungeon Master text. Um, and it's... Uh, I really like that about it. So in the original game... You play it single player and you have a party of three people. So pretty standard party would be fighter, cleric, mage. Now co-op, they just break that apart and every character controls only one character. So probably an ideal co-op would be playing it with three people. Yep. Uh, Joanna and I are only two people. So we're basically like, we're mostly playing as a fighter and a cleric and there's like no mage. But I have an account with some higher level characters that I can swap in and out if need be. So it's going pretty well so far. Uh, And I suppose if we ever have a third person who really wants to play, we could invite them. But we probably won't. Um, the, yeah, so what do, what do you like about it, of, of the things I said, or? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, oh, man. Oh, and I, I, I missed the aesthetic, which is that all the characters are, like, literally, like, little cardstock things on, like, yeah. plastic stands. It's like, it, so it looks like a board game. Yeah, it does. So. Um, what do I like? Well... I know that this is really standard, but it's not It's not really standard necessarily in PC games, um, mm-hmm. but it is standard in um, card games, more standard. is. I like the way that the cards in your deck are based on all the different parts of your character. So, like, your weapon mm-hmm. has cards, and your armor has cards, and your shield mm-hmm. has cards, and then you have, like, they're all specific to, like, your class and your character type. Right. I like that a lot. Um, it's... Not something I've gotten very good at yet, but it's interesting. You know, it's like not boring. So, um, and Joanna's basically playing herself, which is that she's a dwarf and she's pretty, uh, pretty tanky, but can't move very quickly. I am not tanky. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Uh, but it is true. They didn't have hobbits, so I want a dwarf. Or do they have They don't. They can't have hobbits. No, they have. Yeah. They can't because no. that's, yeah. Um, you, you can have halflings. Halflings is not trademarked, yeah. but you can have hobbits. Yes, there you go. Um, it's true. I'm really, um, and I named my, uh, what is it? Bumpf? Bumpf. Yeah, Bumpf. I named my dwarf Bumpf. And she's great. Ah, she's just tremendous. Um. Yeah, Bumpf did have a gender change, uh, fairly early on in the campaign. She did, yeah. She was a dude and then she became a chick. Because one of the things you can get is new character skins, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I like that game. Um, and it's also, like... I don't know. It's fun, and it's fun to, like, read the text. It's kind of like all of the aesthetic pleasure of uh, of a paper tabletop without any of the obnoxiousness of it. Do you think this is a game you would play by yourself, single player? Uh, less likely. It's, it comes down to, like, it's like the pleasure of a tabletop game, which, you know, I don't think of tabletop RPGs as something that I would play by myself either. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't whatever that's just how yeah. i'm sure there are solo rpgs <laughs> yeah, i know i know yeah I, I see what you're saying yeah 
it's the same idea. Yeah, I don't think I, I was trying to get you to talk about all the wonderful things I bring to the game, but you know, I Dylan, it. you bring your wonderful self to the game every time. Uh, let's talk about the game. Um, so you want me to talk about what it's like playing Card Hunter with you? Because <laughs> that's a different question. Um, <laughs> one of the most, Dylan, one of your most obnoxious characteristics is letting me know after I do something what I should have done. That is probably my least favorite thing about playing with you. But um, to, to be fair, often like I'll be like, I'll be like, Joanna, I would recommend, and then she would click a card and it's like, uh. And it's hard. No, it is hard because on one yeah. hand, with games like that, and this is actually a struggle with in, in tabletop games too, is that on one hand, I want because I have a lot more experience with this. Like, I want to make it more accessible for you. I don't want you to hit that like brick wall of stats and complexities. So I want to help, like, help you not. Basically, I don't want you to have to figure things out by losing a ton, which is the way you normally learn things in video games, yeah. right? At the same time, I don't want to backseat drive you because that's obnoxious. Um, so finding that balance can be difficult. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I think overall, though, it's one thing about that game is that it's good for, um, you don't have to be a huge gamer to enjoy that game. Um, yeah. So that's one thing about it. Oh, and it's good for people whose main experience is not with PC gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, that's, I don't know. I, I like that game. I do. Okay. So that was Card Hunter. Um, so let's talk about what we're doing for next episode, for next episode's media club, that is. Cool. So we are going to read the book, Democracy for Realists, Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Government by Christopher H. Aachen and Larry M. Bartels. You can get this from Amazon or wherever. It is an academic book, but it's not like a million dollars or anything. Um, and I'll give you the, the general, the paragraphs so you get a sense of why we're reading this. Democracy for Realists assails the romantic folk theory at the heart of contemporary thinking about democratic politics and government and offers a provocative alternative view grounded in the actual human nature of democratic citizens. Christopher Aachen and Larry Bartels deploy a wealth of social scientific evidence, including ingenious original analysis of topics ranging from abortion politics and budget deficits to the Great Depression and shark attacks, to show that the familiar ideal of thoughtful citizens steering the ship of state from the voting booth is fundamentally misguided. They demonstrate that voters, even those who were well-informed and politically engaged, mostly choose parties and candidates on the basis of social identities and partisan loyalties, not political issues. They also show that voters adjust their policy views and even their perceptions of basic matters of fact to match those loyalties. When parties are roughly evenly matched, elections often turn on irrelevant or misleading considerations such as economic spurts or downturns beyond the incumbent's control. The outcomes are essentially random. Thus, voters do not control the course of public policy, even indirectly. Um, and they they go on a little bit about recommendations, but it's so it's a very provocative work. Uh, it's appealing to me. It's funny. I was had this book on my to read list um, even before the election of Donald Trump, but has made me think a lot about because one thing that's interesting is that you, you mentioned during the podcast how things are like very partisan and often will live in a sardi where like. If the Democrats are like blue is a good color, the Republicans would be like blue is a terrible color, right? Like there's this idea that they have to disagree on things. Um, but they all ostensibly uh, agree on this sort of folk idea of democracy and democracy is good and citizens, you know, I was elected with a mandate by the citizens who believe I should do this thing because public polling says that 56% of them think so and blah, 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 right? That even if, you know, the Republican Party engages in a lot of voter suppression and whatnot, at least in theory, 
they support both democracy in general and all these ideas about what democracy does. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's interesting to assail that both in, in both identifying the problems with it and then, of course, the bigger question of where do we go from here. It's worth mentioning that for next um, podcast, we're only reading the prologue through chapter two. So, yes, which so is, if you would like to read along and get this from your local library, and if your local library doesn't have it, you can generally see if you can get it through ILL or whatever. You'll have a month, and that's only about 50 pages. Yeah, so, uh, it's and, through and page it's, 52. And it is, like, it's not it's not an academic book, like, of the sort where you pick it up and it's just super turgid and you can't understand it without having a degree in that subject. Like, it's very, I mean, I've read, like, the first 25 pages or so and it's like it's very readable it is readable i will say it's a little bit dense so it's yes. do you expect an academic text when you pick it up um but the it shouldn't like getting through 52 pages it's 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 in some ways i think many people will find it a gratifying read because it does speak to what some things some things that a lot of people might feel instinctively right now um yeah, yeah it's, so, it's a prescient work prescient uh, there we go um so yeah uh democracy for realists so we'll be talking about that and uh, its implications. Um, okay. Uh, so is there anything else? Oh, I was going to say... Um, comment bag. The bag of the comments. comment bag, which we don't have any yet because we just put the podcast out like a week ago. Okay. No comment bags. Um, but we'll what we'll do, here's about this. We'll commit that, that um, by episode three, we will have set up a mailbox that you can send emails to or send comments to that we will read on the show if we get any. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Um, second, uh, we uh, don't have a theme song. So if you are a musical artist who would like to compose us a theme song for very little money, <laughs> uh, you let us know. Uh, and um, otherwise, in my editing malarkey i will continue swapping around things and i don't know it'd be fun to, that we've like both listened to a song when we open but it's actually technically hard to do i was actually look, looking at ways to like try to sync a cro- song remotely and short of you know holding my speaker up to a microphone it's pretty hard to do because then it gets in the podcast yeah. and messes up to editing da, 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 da. that's it i guess so until next time thank you for tuning in and uh we will make some sort of meme sign-off thing eventually. Sounds good. Bye. Until then, bye.